0: Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's word to be empowered and challenged today. Today we actually uh, kind of turn a corner in the book of Judges. You know that the last two weeks we've been looking at the two different introductions to the book of Judges. The the author of Judges has two different introductions. You'll remember the first one we talked about being half-hearted and we talked about that movie, He's Just Not That Into You and how the Israelites were just not that into God. And then last week, we talked about worship wrecks, what happens when our hearts worship something besides God. Well, today, what we're looking at is we're actually getting to the first two judges, Othniel and Ehud. Now, a judge is not someone who's self-righteous. It's not someone who sits behind in a court, but rather a judge in Israel was a political leader. It was almost like a local chieftain or a a military uh, leader. And so that's what a judge is when we use that term judge. And as we look at Othniel and Ehud today, we're gonna just see a couple simple things. We're gonna see our need for deliverance from sin, and we're gonna see how God provides an unlikely deliverer. Our need for deliverance and how God provides an unlikely deliverer deliverer. Um, God loves to use the unlikely. And that's really good news for us because oftentimes when we fail, we think, oh, it's unlikely that God will use that failure. Oftentimes when we see our own weaknesses, we go, it's unlikely that God will use that weakness. Oftentimes when our plans go sideways, we go, it's unlikely that God will use those plans. But God loves to use the unlikely. And that's one of the things we're going to see in this story. Now, usually when we, um, when we have sermons here on Sunday, we read the whole story and then we go back through it. But today, we're not going to read the whole story up front. We're actually going to go verse by verse. So you'll see which verse we're on behind me uh, on the projector, and then you can read along with it. And the reason we're doing that is because this is kind of a really fascinating story and I don't want to give it away until it's time. So we're going to go verse by verse and the sermon will feel a little bit different than that. It'll feel a little bit more like a Bible study, um, but you can take notes like it is a Bible study. So let's pray and let's get in to the unlikely deliverer. Lord, we just pray that you would be present with the preaching of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what you're saying to us. What a privilege it is to actually hold the words of God in our hands. What a blessing it is that you want to communicate with us, even through an unlikely story like this. We pray that you would change what we love and how we think and what we do with our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's start off in verse seven and first identify our need for deliverance. Verse seven starts out, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, when it says they did what was evil in the Lord's sight, it tells us that what they did that was evil was they forgot the Lord. And when they forgot the Lord, it wasn't something that was factual, like it wasn't like, oh, I forgot about the Lord. I don't know who he is. It was more relational. They stopped centering their lives on who he was and what he had done for them. In other words, they had God in their heads, but they did not have God in their heart. And God's command, his great command to his people was to remember who he was and live their lives accordingly. If you can put on Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to beware in your heart. Next slide. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them down on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Do you see how the Lord knows that his people are forgetful? And so he tells them, don't forget who I am. Don't forget that it's your responsibility to love me as I have loved you. And so talk about me at the dinner table. Write down what I say, and pass it on to your children's. Don't forget who I am. And yet at the same time, what did Israel do? They forgot. They knew about God in their head, but it didn't really affect their heart and it didn't affect their life. And you and I can get there as well. I mean, forgetting is powerful, right? You ever give uh, someone else an assignment, like you're a boss and you tell your employee to do something? or you're a parent and you tell your kid to do something. And it's always this weird thing when they'd go, well, I forgot, <laughs> I forgot. And you're like, well, don't forget. It's not my job to remember for you. I told you so that you wouldn't forget, but yet you did. And Israel has this problem where they keep forgetting who God is in their heart and what he's called them to do. And, and so God delivers them over to discipline. Verse eight tells us, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to King Cushan. I'm gonna give that a shot. Rishathaim of Aram Naharim and the Israelites served him eight years. Now, now it says here that God gets angry. But one of the things that we have to understand is that his anger is in the context of relationship. Like if someone that you're close with does something wrong or abandons your relationship, you will get angry because you're not indifferent. God is not indifferent about his people. And so when they worship other gods besides him, he gets angry in the context of relationship because he's not indifferent about his people. He loves them. And when he gets angry, he allows them to experience the consequences of their sin. As they worship foreign gods, he gives them over to the people of those foreign gods and they come in and they take over his people. They oppress them, they they own them. And we look at this and we say, there's some familiarity there. Because oftentimes we look at things that are not of God and we head right towards them. And sometimes God lets us experience the consequences of our rebellion. We've been talking about this over the last few weeks where we see sin and we head right for it, and then we get bound up in sin. And sometimes when we forget about God and we forget what he says, we need to experience the challenges that come with forgetting God. And that's exactly what God does. He he lets them get to a place where they realize they need deliverance from the people that are oppressing them. And they need deliverance because they've forgotten God. And so they cry out for deliverance. Verse nine and ten: The Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. Verse ten: The spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel, meaning he was their leader. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushan-Rishathaim of Aram to him, so that Othniel over Powered him. As soon as the Israelites realize what they've done, as soon as they realize that they're being disciplined by God because of their rebellion against God, they cry out to Him and ask for salvation, and He raises up a savior. As soon as they ask for deliverance, He raises up a deliverer. And Othniel, in many ways, is a very likely deliverer. What, what I mean by that is He popped up in the first chapter of Judges. And we found out that he was like all in when it comes to following God. Like he was someone who wanted to follow God's plan and purposes and promises. And so God raises him up to deliver Israel. And everything's great about, about, about Othniel, except he dies. Verse 11 says, then the land had peace for 40 years and Othniel son of Kenaz." dies. Because of this, because he dies like every human being does, Israel repeats itself. Israel needs deliverance because they forget and they also persist. Part of the book of Judges is kind of boring because each section starts out like this. Verse 12, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're like, again? And they're like, again. They persist in their sin. He gave, God gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. You know, sometimes with sin, sometimes when we look at things that aren't God's plan or commands, there's this emotional reality that happens in us where we just want it. And that emotional reality becomes stronger to us than our bond to the Lord. And what do we do? We give in again and again and again. It, it reminds me of this story. A friend of mine uh, was at a church and his son was like eight or nine years old. And for some reason, his son was on stage. Maybe he was part of a group that was about to sing. I can't really remember why, but, but the preacher was talking and the son and his friends were behind the preacher waiting for their role that they were about to play in the service. And in front of the son was this candle. Now, a little eight-year-old boy and a lit candle, you know that something's going to happen. And as the pastor was talking in the background where everyone could see him, the little boy saw the puddle of wax dripping down the candle and he just couldn't help himself. And he reached his hand out and he put his hand in the wax as it dripped down and it burned him and he just went, ha, ha. But he kept his hand there (laughs) until his hand was covered with wax. Now the whole audience is laughing and the dad who's out there is embarrassed because he sees what his son's doing as the pastor's trying to communicate. And the son pulls his hand back and kind of looks at it like he's done something amazing and yet he's in pain at the same time. And then what he does is he goes like this. And he puts his other hand towards the candle and does the exact same thing lets the wax drip over. And as soon as the wax is dripping over, he's ha, ha, ha. And he's standing on stage like this as the pastor's trying to communicate. What a perfect picture of Israel's repetition of sin. What a perfect picture of our repetition of sin, of our persistence of sin, of our our willingness to say, again, I'm gonna do it again, even though it hurts when we touch it. Even Even though we know there's consequences to it, we go back again and again and again, just like the boy with the candle. And God knows this about our hearts. And so when God disciplines us for repetitive sin, he does it because he loves us. I mean, the truth is, you and I don't change unless there's a little bit of the presence of pain in our lives. Like, we'll continue happy-go-lucky, even if we're doing something destructive, until we see the presence of pain. Maybe that's pain for us, or maybe that's pain that it's causing someone else. But when we see the presence of pain, we begin to wrestle. Our hearts get softened. We begin to listen and we get honest with ourselves. And that's why God gives Israel over to discipline because they don't listen and their hearts aren't soft and they'll go back again and again. And one of the things that you need to understand, especially if you're not yet a Christian, is when God disciplines, it's because he loves. Like what parent lets their child run in the street over and over and over again? You have to bring some form of discipline in that child's life or they will destroy themselves. And 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 many people often think that God is like this vindictive character from the real housewives of LA, you know, just drama and like maybe brings a baseball bat into a China shop or something like that and just starts swinging. But that's not how God is when God is angry. Uh, When God is angry, it's because it's in the context of relationship and it's because he loves you. And so his discipline isn't haphazard. It's not overly dramatic. It's precise. It's precise because he wants you to get to see uh, the power of sin in your life and break that in your life. And so he raises up another king to take over Israel. This one's name is King Eglon. In verse 13, we learn more about this king. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Verse 14, the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. This king that has taken over Israel is a formidable foe. He's strategic. He knows how to get other nations to join, in him, join with him so that he can come in power over Israel. Not only that, but he overtook Jericho. That's the city of palms. Do you remember Jericho in the book of Joshua when Israel walked around Jericho several times and the walls came tumbling down? Well, he has so, he's so powerful that he was able to take that city back from Israel and then subjugate Israel, oppress them for 18 years, 18 years. It's interesting here that Israel persists in sin And they experience the power of the consequences of sin in their lives. And it takes them 18 years to cry out for mercy. That tells you something about the state of their heart. Uh, They will keep on sinning, but God is gracious. And God will keep on saving them. He will raise a deliverer for them. But that deliverer is quite unlikely. Look at verse 15. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and God raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him, that's Ehud, with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. A couple things about Ehud and why he's unlikely. It says there in that verse that he's left-handed. Now, if you're left-handed, you you already know that the world is kind of made for right-handed people. You might have learned that when in elementary school, you went and picked your desk and you realized that it was meant for someone to put their right hand on. Uh, But it's talking about more than that in this particular chapter. Uh, The right hand in this time, in this culture, was seen as a symbol of strength and power. I mean, we we know that Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God because the right hand of God is a symbol of power and strength. And here is Ehud who is left-handed. Now the irony there is it says that he's a left-handed Benjamite. Does anyone know the meaning of the word Benjamin? Benjamin in the Hebrew, the meaning of that is son of my right hand. So here we have a left-handed man who's from the tribe of the right hand. So he already is unlikely in a sense because he doesn't even really fit the name of the tribe that he calls home. But it's more than that. In the original Hebrew, it doesn't just say he's left-handed. The way it tells us he's left-handed is it says his right hand is bound. In other words, something is wrong with his hand his right hand, that makes him a disabled person. And in that culture, it was very different when you think about disability. When we think about disability in our current culture, we think about cheering that person on. We think about things like um, saying, you can do it. We're gonna help you. We're behind you. You can overcome this. But that's not how they thought about disability in that culture oftentimes people who were disabled were blamed for their disability. Either they had sinned or we thought your parents had sinned, and that's the reason that you have that disability. So Ehud is already unlikely on several levels that he's going to do anything to help Israel at all. And so what Israel does is they choose Ehud to go bring tribute to King Eglon. What that means is the king that's oppressing the people, is oppressing the people by requiring they give food to him. That's what tribute is. Tribute is like taxes. We're in charge, we're over you, we've colonized you. You have to bring us food. And because Ehud doesn't look much like a warrior, Israel's like, we'll send this guy because he's not going to be a threat to that king. The king won't get angry at us for sending a warrior. Let's send the least likely guy to deliver the food so the king doesn't get angry at us. But Ehud has a plan. In verse 16, it says, Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes. So Ehud makes this 18-inch dagger, a foot and a half long, small enough that it can be hidden. But because he's not right-handed, he has to put it on his right thigh. The symbol of what a warrior was, was a right-handed warrior holding a sword, would put the sword on his left side so that you could draw it out in battle. So anyone that's looking for any type of assassin to the king is going to look for someone who's able to use their right hand or a bulge on their left hip that's concealing a weapon. But Ehud, whose arm is bound, uses his left hand and hides this 18-inch dagger on his right hip where no one will look for it. Verse 17 in the next page. He brings the tribute to King Eglon of Moab And then here's this stark little fact, fact, who was an extremely fat man. Now, it doesn't just say that he was slightly overweight. It says that he was very, very overweight. And now I want to be sensitive in our cultural moment because we're having great discussions about weight and about size and about bodies. But what's happening here is something very specific. Do you know why King Eglon is very large? It's because he's been eating all the food that Israel brings him. His body literally shows his power. In fact, in that day and age, if you were larger, it was a symbol that you didn't have to work and you could just eat. And so when it tells us that he's an extremely large man, what it's saying is he's extremely powerful. And the reason that he's so large is because he's getting all of Israel's food. His body is literally a symbol of his power and oppression over Israel. And so Ehud brings the food to King Eglon. And in verse 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. He gets them back to Israel. Verse 19, at the carved images near Gilgal, he returns and says, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence, and all his attendants left him. The king's intrigued. Here's this man who's very unlikely to do anything to hurt him, so he, he welcomes him clear he, he, near him. He sends out all his servants. And then in verse 20, it says, Then Yehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And you can sense the excitement because the king stands up from his throne. Now, I want you to get the imagery here. here. Here we have a very interesting scene. King Eglon, the one who's in power over God's people, is literally in a penthouse above his kingdom. And here's Ehud who says, mighty king, I have a message for you from God. And they both stand up face to face. Eglon in this penthouse that represents his power. Ehud, who's had to ascend up the stairs to reach this powerful man. There's Ehud with his right hand bound, a symbol of his weakness. And literally the king's Belly hanging over, a symbol of his power and oppression. There we have this powerful human king and this weak, weak man. And here the point of the story. Verse 21, Ehud reaches with his left hand, takes the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Do do you see the irony? Do you see the, the paradox between power and weakness and just how unlikely it is that Ehu would be the deliverer raised up to free God's people from oppression? But just so we get the point, the author tells us just what a spectacle this assassination was. In verse 22, it says, even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And then we get this verse, and the waste came out. In other words, whatever was inside Eglon spills out. And that's disgusting. Why in the world would the author include that in this story? The reason why is it's an utter spectacle what God's deliverer has done to the enemy of God's people. It is a complete disaster for the oppressor. It is so. Unlikely and yet so final. Here this man who represents weakness and unlikeliness has defeated this man without a doubt. He lays dead on the floor with a sword so far in him that they cannot find it. God has won. And he has used an unlikely deliverer for that victory. And then we see this, verse 23. Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. So he locks the king in. Verse 24, Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and they thought that he was relieving himself. They thought he was going to the bathroom and that's why he locked himself in the cool room. Verse 25, the servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. It's as if the author wants to take, it, take us through it again. Like it's really that much of a spectacle of what has happened to this enemy of God's people by the hand of the unlikely deliverer. I mean, you can imagine the servants finally getting in to the king's chambers and stumbling upon this grotesque mess and being like, what happened? Who did this? There's no way that left-handed man could have been the one that did this. That guy? That guy was the one who did this to our king? Yes. God raised an unlikely deliverer because God loves using the unlikely. God likes using the unlikely. Uh, You know, we often look at the world and we think in terms of human power, but God loves to use weakness. As we look around, we think that God needs something that is wise, but God loves to use what humans think is foolish. We often think of ability and resources, but God loves to use what seems insufficient, and unlikely, just like he used Ehud. God doesn't need human strength. He doesn't need our ingenuity. He doesn't use our resources in the way that we want. He works based on what is unlikely because he loves to use what's unlikely. Maybe as you even think about your own story, maybe there's a place of life life application there for you. So often, the pain points in our lives are the places where things happen that we don't like, where our plans go sideways, where failure happens, where we're ashamed of weak points. But the story reminds us that God loves to use what is unlikely. And maybe it's at that very place where you feel like your weakness, your failure, your story going sideways makes you unusable or unlikely. Maybe it does, but that's the very place God wants to use you. In fact, it goes much deeper than that. R- really, our faith is all about unlikeliness. In 1 Corinthians 1, through 29, Paul says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. In other words, consider how God drew you to Jesus Christ. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that... No one may boast in his presence. Uh, God has picked us to be part of his family through Jesus, not because we're likely, not because we're sufficient, not because we had a ton to offer him, but specifically because we're unlikely. I mean, this isn't the way the world works. Well, why did you get hired for your last job? It's Because you were qualified. Uh, If you have been picked as a spouse, you were picked as a spouse because someone liked the qualities they found in you. If you get followers on social media, it's because by following you on social media, you offer something to those followers and it attracts them. But when people become Christians, it's the exact opposite. We don't have anything to offer God. We don't have anything that triggers him going, I want that one in my family. Rather, it's the exact opposite. He picks us for his family because we're unlikely. In fact, I would even say this, the best Christians are those people who go, I have no idea why I'm in God's family. I don't understand why God has been so gracious to allow someone like me. I mean, my story is full of failures. I see all of my flaws. At times, I can be so prideful. I don't get it why God picked an unlikely person like me, but he did, but he did. And the point isn't that we wallow and go, man, woe is me. No, rather, as we see our own unlikeliness, it is the lenses that we can more clearly see God with confidence. Did you see how Ehud just executed this plan? Like he was who he was, a man of weakness and unlikeliness, and yet he marched right into that king's chamber. The best Christians are people that go, you know what, I don't understand why God would welcome me and his family, but he has because of what Jesus has done. And that is not how the world works, but it's how God works. And just to emphasize the point, the author tells us what happened next in verse 26. Ehubit escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan River near the carved images and reached Shara. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country and he became their leader. This left-handed man becomes the leader of the whole nation of Israel. Verse 28 says, he told them, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. Verse 29, at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Ehud rallies everyone and says, God has given us the victory. Follow me, that me, this unlikely deliverer. And they go to battle against King Eglon's men. And when it says they're stout and able-bodied, it doesn't mean that they're bodybuilders. What it's trying to say is, these are some big old boys. Like they've been eaten with King Eglon as well. Now they're able to fight, but they're big old boys. And yet here, is this left-handed man leading Israel to victory against these big old boys. What an unlikely scene at the fords of the Jordan River. That reminds us of another victory. Another scene. Another unlikely deliverer who was raised up on the hill called Calvary. And he didn't say, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, he said, it is finished. Uh, Jesus Christ, the, the poor man from Nazareth, was raised up on a Roman cross, convicted as a criminal, uh, subjugated by Roman soldiers, spit on and crucified. And in those moments, Jesus comes face to face, just like Ehu did with Egon. Jesus comes face to face with the presence and power of sin in our world. He comes face to face with the work of the devil in humanity. He comes face to face with the shame of a public execution. Jesus comes face to face with death itself. And he looks death and he looks devil and he looks, he looks at the devil and he looks at sin and he looks at shame. He looks them all in the eye. And he says, I have a message from God for you. It is finished. It is finished. And then Jesus, in even more unlikeliness, dies there on the cross. But as he dies, he is plunging the death blow right into the gut of sin, right into the heart of death, right into the throat of the devil. Because in his death, his unlikely death on the cross, He is the Deliverer. The unlikely Deliverer who makes a spectacle out of sin, death, shame, and the devil on the cross. Friends, this isn't just like a little nice story where it's like Rocky Balboa comes back and beats Apollo, right, as an unlikely boxer. This is our faith. Our God loves to use the unlikely. Our God loves to choose unlikely people. And Jesus, our Savior, is the unlikeliest deliverer in what he did on the cross. But when you begin to see it, when you begin to see the beauty of what Christ has done for you, it becomes the most important, unlikely thing in your life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness, weakness. It's unlikely. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newchh.com. We'll see you next week.